this up as I go. What are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I need to do this all day. The Matt Sodnicker Podcast. Hey, welcome to the podcast. This is Matt Sodnikar. Thank you to everybody for listening. And I always say, please send me your guest suggestions. In this case, it actually happened. Our mutual friend, Anna Hansen from Ship Sunshine, set uh, this conversation up. So I'm super excited. And with me tonight is Kelly Schneider. She is the founder of Murph's Hot Sauce. And with that, Kelly, thanks for coming over and talking... I don't know what we're going to talk about, but thanks for being here. Absolutely, Matt. Thanks for having me. Sure. So um, I love your hot sauce, by the way. It's it, I've bought it several times. Now it's at Cafe 13 and Golden. And so why hot sauce? How did you get into hot sauce? You know, I didn't want to go to graduate school. I didn't want to wait tables for the rest of my life. And I was um, doing a lot of gardening and just, you know, I've been cooking since I was a little girl. And, um, you know, what do you do when you have extra produce in the garden, right? You make condiments. And um, so I was making everything from tomato sauce to ketchup to barbecue sauce to relish of all sorts. And then I just started making hot sauce. You know, I had a buddy of mine gave me um, a half a bushel of peaches from his backyard. And I thought, well, I don't want to make preserves or pie or any of that other stuff. And so I I made a peach habanero hot sauce and it just kind of took off like wildfire. I mean, people were stealing it out of my refrigerator and asking for it for Christmas <laughs> gifts and uh, the whole deal. And so um, it was like, well, I mean, I don't want to go to school and I don't want to wait tables. And I've been always, you know, talking about starting a company. So, you know, what about hot sauce? And I just started doing a, you know, just kind of took a view of the the Denver market at the time. Back in 2014, there were just a couple of small um, craft hot sauce companies and nobody was you know, really doing anything worth talking about. And so I just thought, well, I'm going to just jump right in there and see what I can do. (laughs) So I know for a fact there's some details going from stealing it out of your fridge to launching it into wherever it went. So what was the the process like from like, um, I'll just call it like the homegrown hot sauce to actually getting it into retailers? Or what was your model? What would you do like that first step? So the first step really was, you know, registering the name with the Secretary of State. You know what I mean? It's like I paid 50 bucks and got like Murph's Condiments LLC, you know, and I was like, okay, I think I'm locked in. I don't know. A $50 commitment really got me. And, um, and I had a couple of recipes. I had one for pineapple sriracha, which I still have on the schedule today. So it's hand grenade sriracha. And then the peaches and scream is the peach habanero hot sauce. And um, basically it looked like, well, I got a couple of recipes and now I need a bottle and now I need a cap and then I need a label. And what are we going to, you know, what's the logo going to be? What's the label going to look like? And I started out in... Um, after I got kind of all that preliminary stuff out of the way in the first six months, I, I started out at farmer's markets. And so I was just, you know, selling direct to consumer and just trying to get the word out there. And um, after I gained a little momentum at the farmer's markets, um, I just started running around and doing cold call sales. I would show up with two bottles of hot sauce at every restaurant in Denver. Hi, my name's Kelly Sheck Snyder, and I think you should buy my hot sauce. You know, it's made here locally, you know, it's sugar-free, yada, yada. And, um, 
and I just pounded the pavement. I mean, I did it old school style. I really was into cold call sales and, um, you know, I ended up with about 150, uh, wholesale accounts, mostly restaurants by the end of year three. And, um, yeah, we were rocking and rolling pretty good. So, um, I used, um, the 150 wholesale accounts to get a couple of distributors to pick me up. And so, you know, now I'm working with Cisco and with Shamrock and with Performance Foods and on the food service side. And, um, you know, kind of once we got that going, um, I started to really look at retail and e-commerce. And so I figured that bottles on tables would be great marketing and, you know, would create demand for the retail side of the business. And so um, I was right. So people were gunning to buy it everywhere they could. And so we went after the specialty grocery stores and then eventually went after King Supers and the hot sauce is sold there. And now we're making a big push to do grocery nationally. So. So I get really excited and I'll be even more excited now when I go into a restaurant and I see the hot sauce there, because when I ask for a hot sauce, like the biggest disappointment is Tabasco for me. Like if that comes out, I I like that on uh, tuna salad and some mac and cheese. Uh Cholula's a great standby, but when they have Murph's, I'm like, all right, I know I'm dealing with somebody at least has a little bit of design and creativity behind it. So I get really excited about that. Yeah. Tabasco is just, I mean, and I'm from the state of Louisiana, right? Where Tabasco is just like the holy grail of hot sauce. And I just, I've hated it all my life. I've never enjoyed it. I don't use it in anything, on anything, around anything. You'll never find it at my house. You never have. I mean, I just, you know, when I was thinking about starting a hot sauce company, it was like, I was just tired of the thin vinegar style hot sauce that was available. I mean, you're right. Cholula is a good standby and I, I'll eat Cholula, but I'll never, ever eat ch- Tabasco. I mean, I just can't stand it, you know? And, um, I just thought, man, this condiment could be so much more if people were getting creative with it. And so that's what I really endeavored to do was to get creative with it to, you know, combine kind of the sweet and savory flavors just to make hot sauce that would just kind of change the way people thought about hot sauce. You know, it just doesn't have to be just, just, you know, a little bit of spicy vinegar eating up on your food. It can actually really enhance the overall flavor and quality of the meal you're eating, you know? If I wouldn't look like a psycho, I would just eat hot sauce with a spoon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the sign to me of a good hot sauce where the the it's usually tortilla chips fades into the background and like the chip is the hot sauce delivery vehicle. Absolutely. And that's to me the mark of a uh it's not a condiment, it's a it's a food. It's a it's like a craft beer, a good glass of wine. Like there's certain things that I crave and like this hot sauce goes perfectly on that. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm the same way, you know, I'll eat hot sauce with a spoon. No problem. I mean, I just don't have any shame about it at this point, you know? (laughs) Good. I can can set myself free. (laughs) Yeah. You're, you're, you're totally free on that. I mean, I just think that too, I mean, gosh, I buy hot sauce all the time just for research and development purposes, just kind of see what other people are doing. And I mean, it is rare when I find a hot sauce that I keep. I mean, I have thrown a lot of bottles of hot sauce in the trash after sticking a toothpick in it to try it, you know? I mean, it's just some of the stuff on the market out there is just nonsense. I mean, it's just terrible, you know? But, yeah, I'm I'm a, I'm a fan of eating hot sauce by the spoon. I've, I've backed off on my hot sauce consumption lately, though. I don't know if my, my body's just kind of giving it up or what's going on there, but I don't eat it as much as I used to, you know? 
So where the name Murphs, and I think it's kind of a, a vanilla question, but because I've seen it and now you're here, I want to know where it came from. And it's always a wiener dog on the logo, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So my parents own a basset hound named Murphy. Okay. And it's a basset. It's okay. a basset. Yeah. It's- and he was a long dog. He is. He's a long dog. He's 10 and a half years old. Um, his birthday's on January the 3rd. He's a basset hound. He's brown and white and he's an old man and he's grumpy and loud and kind of gross. And um, and he just, you know, back in the day, he was really cute and fun and sweet. And um, my brother is actually the one that named the company. So him and I were just kind of chit-chatting about like, well, what are we going to call it? And, um, and he said, well, what about Murphs? And I was like, okay Murphs all right and so that just kind of led me to like well I could pair that nicely with the logo of the Basset Hound so I guess why not I'll put a dog on hot sauce and see what happens and it really turned out to be just sort of the the best case scenario you know Colorado really loves dogs I mean we're a very dog friendly state you can bring your dog pretty much anywhere and um and the logo is really recognizable. You know what I mean? People see the logo and they're like, oh, yeah, I had that for breakfast at Jelly. Or I met that girl at the farmer's market. Or, you know, it just kind of gives the brand a little bit of a standout as opposed to just a name, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah so. so from the time that you, for my reference, you people are stealing it out of your fridge till like the first commercial bottle and you were cold calling. Like, how long in like months or weeks or years was that? from that moment i made the first recipe of peaches and scream um in summer of 2012 Mm -hmm. and i launched the company in 2014 so january 2014 so about a year and a half and um yeah i mean to cold calling you know it's like it's so interesting to start a food manufacturing business because i'd worked in restaurants for so long and i thought surely that my restaurant knowledge was just going to set me on good footing to have a manufacturing business and it helped out a little bit, but not in the ways that I expected. And so it was really challenging to um, to scale recipes and to go from making 20 bottles of hot sauce to making 100 bottles of hot sauce and having to sort of refine the process over time to be more efficient and faster, you know. And it was like the first time I made a batch of the pineapple sriracha, it was 20 bottles, which is about a gallon. And it took me, um, it took me like three hours to make it happen. Like I just had no idea what I was doing. (laughs) And, um, and in comparison, um, you know, when I closed my manufacturing facility last year, we were doing 3000 bottles in about five hours. Wow. You know, so it's, it was a real, I mean, it's just, it's one of those things where you have to create all your infrastructure from scratch, you know, and so you, you get a little machinery and then, and then you bootleg some of it and then you get a little bit more machinery and then you bootleg it and inevitably something breaks and you say, you know, try something new. And, um, yeah, it's manufacturing is a big deal. It's, it's tough. It required every bit of ingenuity I possessed. So, (laughs) yeah. So what was that first sale like? So you're going in and I consider myself a cold call road warrior for lack of a better term like for the client i'm working for today i actually did 39 dials and some guy got pretty (laughs) upset that i had his phone number he's like where'd you get this number let me talk to your boss i'm like "Mm, click right yeah (laughs) but take me through that first win that first sale and what that felt like when that restaurant was like they said yes what did that feel like you know, the first one I really remember that sticks out was Ale House over on, um, over in Lohi. And, um, 
I went in and I was with, there was a gal named Tara that was working with me at the time and she was helping me do sales and make hot sauce. And we kind of just ran around everywhere together. And, um, we went over there and I just, I asked to talk to the head chef. Like I always did, you know, like I didn't want to talk to the servers cause I knew that they would run off with the hot sauce and take it home with them and I'd get nowhere, <laughs> you know? And, um, how many times did that happen? Before oh, you figured that out? geez, probably 30. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it was just, I'd call back or I'd go and show up and they'd be like, what hot sauce? I've never seen any hot sauce. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I gave it to the host. They took it home, you know? And, so, but I just remember, you know, Chef Robert coming out and, um, you know, I'm like tw- 26 years old, you know, like you have no idea what I'm doing. And, um, and he came and got the samples from me and said, all right, I'm going to go back in the kitchen and play around with these and I'll be back out in a few minutes. And, um, that was the first time anybody had ever kind of made me wait around and, um, and man, he took the two samples, you know, the peaches and scream and the, the hand grenade sriracha. And, you know, he came back out 10 minutes later. And he was like, Kelly, this hot sauce is incredible. He was like, I would love to carry it at the restaurant. I mean, I nearly fainted. You know what I mean? Like Ale House is huge, you know, it's like a 300 seat restaurant with a rooftop patio. And I mean, it was just my first big score. And I mean, after that, I was hooked, you know, cold calling is, is definitely, it's like fishing. You know what I mean? Like you're just going to, you're going to keep casting the line because you know, eventually, if you cast enough times, you are going to reel in that monster fish, you know, and cold calling is, is totally the same way. And that was my first monster fish in terms of Murph's condiments. And yeah, I mean, I'll never forget it. I guess the feeling behind it was I was nervous and elated and, oh my God, how am I going to make enough hot sauce to satisfy this one customer? And, um, man, it was just awesome. It just, it gave me the drive for more. Were you trying to play it cool when he came back out and said how much he liked it? Absolutely. You know, absolutely. I mean, nobody likes, you know, somebody that's too big for their britches. You know, I try to really keep it humble. I mean, I know the hot sauce is really good. And I, and I run into a lot of situations where people um, fangirl me a lot. Like, oh, my God, you're the girl that makes Murphs. And it's so amazing. And, you know, it kind of just makes me a little embarrassed. You know, I, um, I, I love that people love the hot sauce and I'm, and I'm proud of my accomplishments. And also I just want to remember that like, you know, that I just have some God given talent in this area and I just really want to share it with people, you know, and, um, and I'm just so glad that everybody likes it. So yeah, playing it cool for sure. You know, I just want to really remain humble and just kind of remember where I came from, you know, who is the, (laughs) speaking of dogs, right? (laughs) (laughs) So, you played it cool in the restaurant. Who was the first person you called when the chef at the ale house said, yeah, we're going to do this? Because that's really what I want to know. Right. You tell yeah, man, I, it was probably my dad. Um, so he's an entrepreneur and his dad was an entrepreneur and his dad's mom was an entrepreneur. So I come kind of from a long line of people that are doing their own thing. And, um, he's my, he's a financial consultant and a CPA. And so he does all of my, um, finances for the business as all my monthly financial statements, et cetera, et cetera. And him and I were talking often about, you know, what I needed to be doing to kind of grow the company. And so I don't remember who I called. I think Tara and I just jumped around and celebrated and went and had a cupcake or something, I'm sure. But I'm sure the first (laughs) phone call was to my dad and, um, Man, I guess I'll just never forget the way that I felt just like, you know, like dreams are possible, you know, that like this dream that I've been having, like I'm actually making something that someone wants to buy. How cool is that? You know, 
because um, you start with an, an idea, right? And you make things that you think are delicious and that I recipe tested and guinea pigged on all my friends and family and they all said it was good. But you had to really have somebody that was independent of me that had no thought of me or care for me whatsoever, just judge the product and go, oh, wow, this is really incredible. I mean, that was just cool. You know, I just felt like, ooh, I got some chops in the food world now. Like, I kind of know what I'm doing, you know? And um, yeah, I was just elated. Yeah, it just gave me the drive to continue, really. Something I learned pretty late in life and in this entrepreneur game, and there was a, a book that I read, and it's like, if you create something, you're an artist. And it took me a little while to get my head around the fact that I'm not going to be the Foo Fighters or U2 or Jackson <laughs> Pollock or Rembrandt, yeah. right? But like this is art, what you and I are doing right here. This is art. We're creating something. Right. And if one person likes it, that's all that matters. And we're taking this out of the, the ether or the universe and just making it happen here. And there's a lot to be said about that, whether it's hot sauce or beer or coffee or whatever. Like, you know, don't discount what you've created because it can make a difference to that restaurant or to your life or something and just be proud of what you've created. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think really, you know, I'm more proud now to own Murph's condiments than I ever been, especially after we've, you know, surmounted all these challenges and managed to scrape together and survive the pandemic. But yeah, I think you're right. You know, I have a friend, um, I'm actually moving in with her in South Florida here in a, in a, month or so and she would always tell me like Kelly like you're a chef you're an artist and it would make me so uncomfortable when she would say that to me because I'm not a classically trained chef right it's like if you if you put me on chopped you know I could prepare some food but not nearly to the level that I watch other people prepare food right and and so when she would call me a chef or a creative or an artist I mean it would just I start sweating you know what I mean like <laughs> oh, like I don't know about that that's like uncomfortable I'm having imposter syndrome but it's really more, um, you know, that I've just, I found something that I'm really good at, you know, and, um, and it is artistic and it is creative and it is really fun. And a lot of people in my circle really do consider me a chef. And so I've started to sort of, it's shifted my thinking about myself. You know, I think I had a lot of imposter syndrome when I first started the company, man, I was young, you know, I've got experience in the restaurant industry, but I'm not, I mean, I mean, I'm not a chef by trade. I didn't go to culinary school. I don't know anything about food manufacturing. Um, you know, I learned everything that I could about, you know, the hot sauce and the condiment business before I launched the company, you know, through market research and reading, um, you know, just all the world market reports and what's the trend on hot sauce over the next 10 years, et cetera, et cetera. And so from a research perspective, I was really prepared, but um, sort of step into the role of artist, creator, chef, business owner, entrepreneur. Um, I don't know that it's a journey you can really prepare for. You know, I think that it's something that you just you make a decision to do and then you fall into it and you wake up every day and try to keep doing it, you know, and keep getting over the failures and the obstacles. And um, but yeah, I mean, the imposter syndrome for me has largely gone away. You know, this idea that like I really do belong in the food scene, you know, food is uh, something I'm super passionate about. And I'm really good at making food and creating experiences with food that are interesting to people and tasty. And um, so, yeah. Do you remember when specifically the imposter syndrome started falling away? Was it a sales number or was it 
somebody that you looked up to that validated the art of hot sauce that you had created you know what do you remember that first step when you kind of walked over that bridge where it's like i'm legit but without the ego because i'm not getting any sense of ego from you at all which i think is really cool but what what helped you solidify yourself as that chef you know i think it really had to do with um you know we probably work by my estimation, we have somewhere between five and 600 restaurants in the state of Colorado that carry the products. And it's an estimation largely because distributors don't often share their numbers. And so that's a um, fairly solid guess on my part based on what I know. And so um, I think it was more about, you know, it's like we get, it's like, okay, well, it's like we're at 200 restaurants that carry the product. We were at 300 restaurants that carry the product. It's like, all these people can't be, you know, all these chefs can't be agreeing to have my products in their restaurants if they're not good, right? And so I think it was more out of the just the collective response, right? That I knew that I had created something good and um, and everybody that I have recipe tested on or guinea pigged or had tried the hot sauce, you know, at farmer's markets or at holiday markets or anywhere that I went was like, wow, the stuff's in- I mean, I would just get amazing feedback all the time. Like I have uh, multiple emails for Murphs for a variety of different things. And I have, um, I get emails two, three, four times a week from customers that are like, this is the most amazing hot sauce I've ever eaten. This is the most amazing. Hot-. I mean, it's just, it's unreal the amount of, um, love and feedback we get. And, um, so I think that it was just, it was kind of like just letting my customers love me and love the product, you know, and then I slowly sort of grew into myself around that, you know, um, that I just took the risk, you know, being vulnerable and, and making something and being creative and putting it out there. And then the reception was just overwhelmingly positive, you know? So I think the imposter syndrome just started to unravel bit by bit. I mean, every new account that I would get, um, it would be like, all right, somebody else thinks I'm awesome, you know, all right, somebody else. And, um, and, um, and that was just cool. Now I just really can't believe that I'm 34 years old and I am the owner of my own company and it's wildly successful and it's probably going to set me up financially for the rest of my life. Like, I can't believe that I got myself into this situation, you know, (laughs) it's astonishing. From that one gallon of um, peach habanero. Right. The one gallon and the getting into the farmer's market. And I mean, and even before that, just, you know, messing around in the garden and just making condiments because that was just something I was interested in, you know. And um, yeah, it's, it, you know, I'm living a life beyond my wildest dreams now, you know. And, and I think that that's. But that's the goal, right, is to get to something, is to is to have something that, you know, maybe is uh, monetarily very um, rewarding, but also that you enjoy getting up and doing every day. I mean, I, I talk to people all the time who don't have that and who are um, incredibly, um, incredibly sad that they don't have that, right? It's the dream to do what you love and to get paid for it, so. I, I wrote down that phrase, let people love me, that really struck a chord i think that's a powerful way to describe fans or friends or i guess you know your hot sauce family now and being receptive to that yeah and feeling worthy of that absolutely i mean i think that um 
you know, I, I, I talk a lot about, I guess with my friends and I'm in recovery and whatnot. And I'm, you know, involved in church and I talk a lot about self-hatred and about how, um, you know, how my, my childhood just didn't, just didn't set me up for a life full of self-love, self-esteem, thinking I was awesome. And, um, and I've struggled with self-hatred off and on, uh, over the years in some moments really profoundly and in other, other moments, I, it's hard to know that it even exists, but, um, there's this phrase in my recovery group that is, you know, we will love you until you love yourself. And I, I remember hearing that when I first walked in and, and thinking like, I don't even know what that means. You know what I mean? I've been sober for eight and a half years now. And, um, and you know, when I got sober, you know, I was, um, you know, I was, I mean, I was drinking every day and I was cutting up and being ridiculous and going to work drunk and just making nothing of myself. And, um, and a lot of that had to do with the fact that I was, I was drinking to really overcome just, just this profound sense of self-hatred, you know, just this, um, I mean, this mental torture, I always used to joke that my brain was really chasing me around with a pickaxe, you know, that I had some trauma that I had not sorted out that I had, um, that I had all sorts of internalized homophobia, you know, like being gay and being raised in the South and having some negative experiences with that. And, um, and I had to drink to be able to, to live life. You know what I mean? I had to drink to be able to be comfortable in my own skin. And eventually the drinking got to be such a problem that it was like, well, it's time to actually learn how to be comfortable in my own skin instead of drinking to try to be comfortable. And so I think that, that that's what I, that's why I said that, you know, it's just like, you gotta let, you know, let people love you, you know, cause I really, recovery is a process of letting other people love you until you can really love yourself, you know? And, um, you know, if it weren't for everybody I've met in the last eight and a half years, you know, I wouldn't be sitting here in front of you. You know, I really had to get vulnerable and, um, and start to acknowledge that I was lovable, you know, and the way I acknowledged it at first was just by letting other people tell me that I was lovable. Right. And then eventually I kind of started to believe it, you know, and now I really believe it, you know, so (laughs) yeah. I, I remember those days. You need some more water? Sure. Um, let me ask this question and I'll, I'll yeah. fill you up. Um, <clears throat> when I was going through my divorces and some of the darkest points were like, I'll never find, I'll never be loved again. Yeah. And feeling it, it was the, the loneliness coupled with the loss of someone that loved me. So it was a physical vacuum and it was also more of a mental or emotional vacuum that I thought, man, I'm going to die alone and nobody's ever going to love me. And it, it, you know, turned around, but you're right. Like the minute that I started, like when I could make myself laugh again, like if I walked through the house and like some some dumb thing popped into my head and I could laugh again. I was like, Oh, I'm, I'm getting better. Yeah. But yeah. It's that feeling like, man, nobody's ever going to love me again. Yeah. But yeah, you, it sounds like you started from a different spot where it was like, you didn't love yourself to start out with. Yeah. I mean, I just think that the, the general sense that I got out of my childhood with was that I was unlovable and I had a pretty, pretty wild 
childhood and, um, and I grew up in an alcoholic home and, um, yeah, just everything that's, that's inherent in an alcoholic home really led me to feeling like, um, yeah, that I was just, that I was unworthy of love, you know, that I was defective, that I didn't matter. And, um, and when you, you know, when you grow up believing that, I mean, I can't even love myself. I mean, how am I going to love anybody else? You know? And, uh, and it's taken a lot of work over the years to really unravel. Um, thank you. Sure. To really unravel mm-hmm. that sense of, to just really unravel that, that sense that I'm defective and I don't matter, you know? And, and it's looked like prayer and meditation. It's looked like, you know, I, I really am wholeheartedly involved in recovery and I go to meetings and I sponsor other women in the program. And I, um, you know, I write myself love notes. I mean, I'm like, I'm, I mean, I'm on it. I'll write myself wedding vows or anything, you know, Kelly, I love you. Kelly, I will always love you. Kelly, I'll be with you through thick and thin in sickness and in health. And, um, and just really realizing that the, the, you know, the most important relationship I have is the one with myself, you know, and so I've got to do everything in my power to make sure that it's right every day, you know, and the way that I do that now is just by participating in any manner of self-care, right? Having a healthy meal, going for a walk, working out, prayer and meditation, going to a meeting, calling a friend. I mean, it just doesn't matter what it looks like as long as it's something that makes me feel good and affirms the fact that like I love me, right? It doesn't matter if you love me or if anybody else loves me, if I don't love me. Thank you for sharing that. And um, I just want to say, this is, like, this is one of the gifts of doing this is that um, I knew it wasn't going to be about hot sauce that we connected, that we, you know, are building this relationship. And so thank you for opening up with that. Yeah, and I really absolutely. appreciate that. Um, you know, and I remember back in 90 or something like that. I was on a business trip with uh, my dear friend Cass and we were, I think actually in Florida, we were in Orlando. Yeah. Uh And it was really cool. And we checked in, it was a hotel connected to a mall. (laughs) And towards the end of it, I wanted to just vaporize. I couldn't stand it. It's not the point of the story, but we were at a Ruby Tuesday one night and we were having beers and I'll never forget this, that she got really quiet and she started talking about something and she had opened up that you know, she came out to me and she was so afraid she was going to lose me as a friend. And there's all these things in abstract, right, that are, you know, gay or black or whatever it is that mean one thing when it's theoretical and the minute that it becomes personal it changes and i actually told this story at her wedding and i thought she was gonna ask me to come up to her hotel room right (laughs) yeah and she came out to me and was like yeah that's cool that's fine like i love you like we're always gonna be friends and i was like but does this mean we're not going upstairs? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She's like, hey, idiot. <laughs> yeah. But um, it really personalized what being gay can mean to somebody. And it's the fact of perhaps losing your best friend. And she had that fear because that had happened before. And I was like, I'm 
I don't care. Like I'm, but it was this amazing extension of trust from her to me, this huge risk on her part. And it's just, it was just one of the most amazing moments of my life. Yeah. But to see it from her perspective, it's like that fear. It's like, oh, wow. Like, okay. It helped me understand what being gay means like on a daily basis for her. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, I came out at 16 and, uh, and it wasn't very warmly received. And, um, we had some quite the drama, um, go on in my household around that. And I ended up getting legally emancipated from my parents. And, um, you know, now the relationship with my parents is beyond my wildest dreams. You know, it took us a few years to come around after that. But, um, but that being said, it's like, you know, um, yeah, this idea that I have to, I have to reveal, uh, who I am fundamentally, you know, to people, right. Because they can't necessarily, necessarily see it because of my exterior. And so I have to get really vulnerable and tell people who I really am and risk rejection, you know, and risk it at, every stage of my life, you know what I mean? Um, that it's like, I have to tell my parents and my siblings, right. And it's like, you know, uh, it's going to go one of two ways, right? Like it's either going to go good or it's going to go bad, you know? And, um, and then I've got to, you know, tell kids at school. And, um, you know, for me, it was like, I was suspected to be gay at my Catholic school because of my association of a couple of girls that got caught making out in the locker room. And I mean, it's, you know, people were yelling at me in the hallway, you fucking die, get the fuck out of my school, blah, blah, blah. And, and that, you know, that behavior really persisted for the next three or four years, you know, um, Louisiana was just incredibly homophobic when I was living there growing up. And, um, and it's not so much anymore. And I'm really grateful for that. But, um, you know, I was reading a book the other day and it's like, you know, our capacity to, uh, love and be in intimate relationships with other humans, um, is our experience of life, right? So, you know, being gay is, and the capacity to enter into loving relationships with women is my experience of life, right? It's really the, it's the thing from all, from which all other things flow is my ability to experience love on that level with another human being. And, um, and this idea that, you know, that I can be rejected for it is, insane. I mean, it's absolutely insane. Um, and you know, I've been wrestling a lot with, um, homosexuality in the Christian church and, um, I grew up Christian. I've dabbled in it, you know, this and that and whatnot. Well, I recently started going back to church again, just cause I felt like, um, my current conception of God was no longer working for me and I wanted to try a new way. And I was in a sermon, you know, like three weeks ago, I go to this cute little church in Louisiana and and I really liked the pastor and he went all fire and brimstone and condemned, you know, homosexuals from the pulpit. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was the last thing I expected from this guy. And I was sitting in church. Um, you know, I was so happy to go to church cause I was having sort of a rough morning and, and I go to get uplifted, you know, and to hear the, you know, the message of, you know, Jesus and I get my teeth kicked in. Right. And I'm, and I'm sweating and I'm shaking and I'm like inwardly just cringing and turning bright red. And, um, and I never want another queer person to ever feel like that in church again. It's really something that I've been sort of, it's a mountaintop I've been standing on for the last couple of months because, 
you know, we even go as far to say in our culture that like, you know, America, I would say, you know, is founded on Christianity, right? And, and Christianity influences a lot of everything that we do. And the Christian church, for the most part, except for a few splinter groups like the Episcopals, believe that, you know, being gay is fundamentally against God. Like, who I am is against the natural order of the universe. <laughs> I mean, if that's not like a recipe for, like, suicide and internalized homophobia, I don't know what is. You know what I mean? Like, telling queer people that they're against the order of the universe, that they're against God, that they're fundamentally unlovable or dirty or unclean. I mean, what? I mean, I just, I've been feeling really passionate about public speaking lately and and actually feeling really called to become a pastor because I feel like somebody's got to start the revolution and maybe it just has to be me. But I'm like determined to not let any more queer people get hurt by the Christian church. It's too much. And it's been going on for too long. I grew up Catholic. And so all the guilt about it, I don't want to, I don't want to be uh, stereotypical about that. It was just, didn't have the guilt, but it was always that you had to go to confession. And I remember being in middle school and I'm like, well, I didn't, I didn't steal anything. I didn't um, fail any classes. I had some just general preteen dickishness, but right. then I went in and I was like, well, I guess I kind of spoke mean to my sister. Like having to find something wrong with me. I still remember that as like, well, this just sucks. And I got confirmed and then they said I was an adult in the eyes of a church. And my first adult decision was I'm not going anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and my journey has been, it, it came around when the kids were born and it, it didn't take me back to being religious. It took me back to like a sense of wonder that there's magic around and there's wonderful things around, but the fact of a, like a higher power, I don't know that I necessarily believe in that. Yeah. And I lost my mom when I was 20 and that coupled with that just really drove me away from any sort of religious things in my life. But like I said, when the kids came back around, I was like, oh, it, it was just nice to have a sense of wonder and maybe smallness in the universe where it was the planets or the stars or the galaxies or something. But, you know, how can to really go after that point about being an abomination of the universe? Like, well, the universe, I don't feel is wasteful, right? The earth, it rains it evaporates, it rains, like everything's in a cycle. And to be of the universe means that you're okay in the universe, whatever you are. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, it's this, you know, God or big guy in the sky or the universe or mother earth or, or whatever it is, sort of this, this common binding thread that we all have. Um, Yeah, I mean, Christianity is so large when you consider it from a global perspective and how many members it has. And to think that, you know, nearly, I'm sure 90% of many, you know, those members really are, you know, taking the Bible at its literal reading um, and condemning homosexuality. I mean, we just have, I mean, it's atrocious, you know, and I think that 
um, that that's one of the reasons that I struggled with so much self-hatred growing up. You know, it was not only the alcoholic home, it was being raised in a gay-friendly church and still not being able to reconcile with like, well, the interpretation of the Bible that everybody's passing around condemns homosexuality, you know? And so I've really been doing some research and um, reading some books written by some biblical scholars that really sort of, you know, uh, over overthrow the current interpretations and debunk, um, you know, both historically and culturally, what the authors at the time were trying to say, you know, because I just, I can no longer live with the idea that Christianity can condemn gay people, you know, whether I intend to be a Christian for the rest of my life or not is irrelevant. It's like, we gotta, I think, you know, I want to be a force for change in one of the largest organizations in the world, you know what I mean? Um, That I just, gay people having to suffer because of something somebody wrote 2000 years ago. I mean, we just, we got to do something about that. Or maybe <laughs> they wrote it or it's, you know, the interpretation. Yeah. Right. You know, and, and that's the thing is that when it gets down to being at the personal level, like to me, it's not you know, to borrow some phrases from, it's not the gay agenda. It's my friend Cass, my friend Amy, right. it's you. It's like, this is personal and like that's all that matters to me yeah is how you treat me as an individual who happens to be gay right <laughs> yeah yeah you know it was a relief to move to colorado um and to just be seen as a person instead of a gay person um because in louisiana i was definitely seen as a gay person you know that had like tattoos and was just maybe a little alternative but it's like in colorado it's like it's like nobody even looked at me. You know what I mean? Like I just fit right in. Like nobody even gave a shit. You know, it was unbelievable. It was so cool to just be a human among humans instead of being like, oh, that lesbian in the corner over there. You know, it's like. Yeah, get in line. Yeah, yeah, right, right. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, Colorado's just been tremendous for me in that aspect of just being able to really grow into my own skin around it, you know, so. I want to ask one hot sauce question and then come back to yes. whatever you feel comfortable with about your childhood or the the church or things like that. And this comes from sort of the origin of this podcast. Did you ever want to quit or did you quit or how did you not quit? Um, yes, I have wanted to quit a hundred times. Um, the first time I wanted to quit was probably a year and a half into it. And I called my mom and I was just like, I can't do this anymore. It's too hard. I was working two restaurant jobs to pay my bills. And I was working Murph's like 40 or 50 hours a week. I mean, I was working easily 80 hours, 90 hours a week. I was getting one day off a month, maybe if I could scrape it out. And, um, you know, and after a year and a half of that, I mean, I was still pretty young, you know, 26, 27, but after a year and a half of that, I mean, I was going crazy. Mm -hmm. You know, I was like, I had no time. I didn't have time to sleep, time to eat, time to see friends, time to try. I mean, I didn't have time for any of the things that make life worth living, you know? And I called my mom and I was like, I'm done with this shit. You know, like (laughs) I can't do it. And she was like, well, that's okay. You know, you gave it a good try. If you want to quit, that's fine. And my dad called me like two hours later and he was like, I heard what you said to your mom. You're not allowed to quit, you know? <laughs> and uh, and he was like, and you're not allowed to call your mom anymore when you feel that way. And, uh, <laughs> 
And they were like, look, just, you know, my dad is, you know, because he walked the entrepreneurial journey, you know, he's he was very good about being like, yes, it sucks. And it really sucks for the first three or four years. Like, it's hard. It's really, really hard. It requires a really intense amount of sacrifice. Um, and it requires you to, you know, get your teeth knocked out and then get them put back in and get them knocked out again and then picking them back up off the floor. And it, um, I think for me that... I wanted to quit a lot, but I always thought um, to myself, like, well, am I a quitter? I don't think I'm a quitter. I'm, I'm very, like, one of the things that I have on my side is I'm very persistent, very determined, and I've got great follow through. Like, if I start a book, I finish it. If I intend to cook a meal, I cook it all the way through and I follow the recipe exactly. I, um, you know, if I take up a new hobby, I'm interested in it, I read all about it, I buy all the stuff and I do it, you know? And so I just sort of applied that to this business. I mean, I think that a lot of the, what kept me from quitting or throwing in the towel was just keeping my eye on the prize. Like one day I want to be rich and I want to have a flexible schedule and, um, and I'm not ever going to achieve that if I just throw in the towel right now, you know? And so it was really just setting little goals every day that would help me to achieve the end goal that I've always been thinking about. Cause I started the company and I was like, I want to sell it for millions of dollars and I want to, you know, invest all of that money and live off of the dividends and do, and, and do all these other side projects. Like I want to learn, I want to become a boat captain and I want to, be a pastor probably in a Christian church. And I, you know what I mean? I have just had a lot of ideas about things I'd like to do. And, um, and Murph's will be the platform that enables me to do it. And so I just thought, well, okay, I can, I can do one more day. I'll just, you know, I'll sleep on it tonight and I'll show <laughs> I'll up tomorrow. tomorrow. I'll quit tomorrow. I mean, that's the mentality you have to have is I'll quit tomorrow. I'll quit tomorrow. I'll quit tomorrow. I'll quit tomorrow. And eventually you, then it's like, oh, okay, well, it's been seven and a half years now. Now I really can't quit. That would be a crying shame, you know. I don't even want to quit, you know, anymore. So, but it was, it's tough. It's tough to start a company. And that's that's one of the reasons I started this was that I wanted to find out, like, really how bad it was. Because there's always the, the, the end result, but nobody ever talks about getting your teeth kicked in and the rejection and just nights and days and months and years of like nobody giving a shit and you not even giving a shit and just what do you do to get through that and it's just like it's the it's the littlest thing one more tiny little thing that you just do just keep moving forward right yeah i mean i think that um you know my dad always says you know being an entrepreneur involves a lot of mental anguish and he's like, right, you know, because you live and breathe the company. I mean, it was Murph's was literally all I thought about other than like maybe needing to take a shower, you know, for the better part of four years, you know. Now I have the luxury of thinking about other things. But when I first started the company, I certainly didn't. And um, and um, I think for me, it was really just, OK, I want to get to that end goal. I can. I can take another ass whooping. I want to get to the end goal. I can take another ass whooping, you know, just like, you know, my, my dad would always say like, I would call him crying or wanting to quit or whatever. And he'd be like, look, go buy a gallon of water and, and keep crying and keep working, you know, and his motto really is he's, uh, he's like, look, you know, every day I, I go to work and I'm standing in front of a brick wall with a sledgehammer and 
a sledgehammer and I hit the brick wall over and over again as hard as I can until the wall falls, you know, and then I get to the next brick wall and I pick up a sledgehammer and I hit that one until it falls. And, and so I just really think about the relentless like drive that it takes to just kind of keep picking up the sledgehammer. I mean, that's really what you have to do. Like, even if you don't want to, even if you don't like it, even if it's not particularly pleasant, even if it feels like you're going to murder all your employees, you know what I mean? Like you just got to keep picking up the sledgehammer, you know, because it's, I think the end game is worth it. I think that's the deal is that I always knew that one day picking up that sledgehammer, even when I didn't want to, would be worth it. And I was right. You know, because now I've arrived, you know, I mean, it's by no means, a you know, uh, I'm still growing it into the company I want it to be. But, you know, to really be blessed enough to work 20, 25 hours a week to manage the company completely remotely to be able to have the freedom to live and work literally wherever I want to. I mean, that's really what I was dreaming about when I was 26 was that kind of freedom, you know, that, you know, sitting here talking to you, I'm like making money. You know what I mean? I like went for a walk today. I was making money on the walk. You know, that's the goal. You know what I mean? Is to be able to have more free time than not and to continue to have a salary that enables me to live a good life. So here's going to be a very broad question and take as much time as you want to answer it. So tying back the, you know, one of the first people you called with that big order from the alehouse being your dad. And growing up in that household with him being alcoholic, how did that transform and get to that point where he was the guy that you called and that he wasn't somebody that you cut out of your life? How did that, over as many years and however long you want to tell the story, how did that turn around? Well, my dad got sober when I was nine. And so I had the fortune of... um of having a sober dad for the later part of my childhood, which was great. Okay. And so we had a lot of, um, we did, we, you know, we did a lot of saltwater fishing on the weekends and a lot of hunting and a lot of, you know, he's a very activity driven sort of guy and he likes the outdoors. And so, um, so I have quite a few good memories of him growing up, but he was also in the middle of starting his business that he still owns today and he was newly sober. And, um, so, you know, his recovery and, um, and the first four years of his business, I mean, he was, he was working like an animal, you know? And, um, so I saw him on the weekends, but not really much else, you know? And so, um, I guess how it transformed really, um, was just that, um, you know, I had this, the really scary incident that ended up with me getting legally emancipated, um, you know, I got into, or I, you know, I was really essentially drinking to, to just overcome trauma and rage and self-hatred and all of these things that I couldn't deal with, with my brain chasing around me around with a pickaxe, like I said earlier. When did you start drinking? Do you remember? I was, you know, I had my first drink when I was 16, but I didn't really start drinking until I was 19. And I, okay. I was drinking, um... I drank normally, like for about two months, you know, like going out on the weekends and then I became a daily drinker and then I drank every day for the next seven years, literally every day. And, um, I guess what transformed is that I got into recovery and, um, when I really started to take a look at my life, I realized that what I knew to be true was that I wanted a relationship with my family and that I was really willing to do whatever spiritual and recovery work I needed to do in order to have it. 
And what that led me to was just the spirit of forgiveness, right? Like that I'm holding on to resentment and I'm holding on to anger and I'm drinking the poison, hoping that the poison, hoping that you're going (laughs) to die, right? Like I'm drinking the poison and I want you to die from it. And, um, and you know, the spirit of forgiveness is that, you know, there's either justice for everybody or there's mercy for everybody. And I'm part of everybody and I get to choose. And so this idea that like, I want mercy for myself. You know, when I'm in my my darkest time, behaving the worst, doing the most awful things I can think of, that's when I need the most love. That's when I need the most compassion, the most understanding and the most love from the people around me. So what can I do to love and nurture and be compassionate and understanding with the people that have hurt me? You know what I mean? And really bring that spirit. Like if I want people to forgive me, then I better get it together and start really bringing that spirit of forgiveness to other people. And so that was really what started to transform it for me is that I I quit drinking the poison and I, and I really thought, well, um, if I want to be lovable through my worst moments, then maybe other people are lovable through their worst moments. And maybe I can extend that to everybody who's hurt me, no matter how badly they've hurt me and, um, and start to turn some of these relationships around, you know? So it's just like, taking little steps, you know, like seeing them more often, calling them more often, trusting them more with the things that were going on in my life, um, showing up to family functions, you know, uh, (laughs) trying not to be an asshole, you know, um, you know what I mean? Like it just, it took a while, right? Yeah. It took like, geez, I got, I mean, I got sober eight and a half years ago. And I say we've probably had the best, like the last five years have been just the best that we've had, you know, the relationship my parents has ever been. And um, it just took a lot of like boundary setting and renegotiating and forgiveness. Like they would act up and I would say, hey, I can't handle that, you know, or I would act up and they'd say, hey, I can't handle that. And, you know, just kind of retooling the relationship to like fit ourselves, you know, and also just being, you know, the definition of grace, right, is unearned favor, you know, and it's like, I really, I want to give people grace, right? Like I want to think the best of them. I want to give them the benefit of the doubt, you know, that everybody really deserves grace. And, um, you know, and so really trying to, you know, it's like my mom, I'm lactose intolerant and my mom put cheese on a salad on a family vacation. And I was like, I started like sobbing at the dinner table. I'm like, you don't even love me. Like you put cheese on a salad and, and you know what I mean? And it's like, uh, okay. I had to make amends for like my behavior around her putting cheese on the salad, you know? And it was just all those little moments that we just started to string together, you know, that it was like, okay, I understand that you didn't put cheese on the salad because you hate me. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> I can probably dial it back a bit, you know what I mean? <laughs> and, uh, you know? And so and Wait, just, what kind of salad is this where you put cheese on it? Well, I mean, we're from the South. What oh. kind of salad do you not put cheese on is the better question. You know what I mean? Okay. I forgot that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Dude, every salad in, in every restaurant in South Louisiana comes with shredded, you know, cheddar cheese on it. I mean, it's just the way it goes, you know? And, um, but, you know, it was really also taking a look at like my hand in, um, in the relationship with them, right? Because it like, it takes two to tango, you know what I mean? It's not like they're just being the asshole or I'm just being the asshole, right? It's both of us together being assholes. And so, um, yeah, just really, you know, um, just, just cooling my jets, you know, just keeping up on the prayer and meditation when I'm around them, you know, really just 
spirit of forgiveness and lots of grace, you know, and also when we slip and fall and knock our teeth out, um, you know, being willing to say, Hey, that was my bad. Like I totally did wrong. Like the way I behaved at dinner last night was not cool. And, um, what can I do to make it right? You know? And, um, so yeah, just bringing, just bringing that to the table and being willing to make amends and make it right and make amends and make it right. So being humble doesn't mean you're a pushover. No, not even a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think that balance you said at the boundaries and the humility and, I think that was for me the the next orbit where I learned to love myself. And then the next part was to just not take things personal from other people. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody is acting out of themselves. It literally it's no bearing on, um, yeah, no bearing on me. It's hard to not take things personally. I mean, I think that we're, you know, we're wired to be sensitive and to be in our feelings and, um, and the, the reality is, is the stuff, you know, stuff that other people does can be hurtful, you know, that those are facts of life, but it really, it really isn't personal at the end of the day. You know, it doesn't matter. If, um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like I didn't wake up trying to cut you off in traffic. Right. Yeah. I didn't wake up trying to cut you off in traffic. I didn't wake up, you know, thinking, um, oh, I'm, I'm going to go stab somebody today. You know, it's just, it's all not personal. It's all not personal, you know, no matter how atrocious it is. Right. It's just humans acting out of their powerlessness and instability and evil and you know i mean we're all fighting our own minds and the mind <laughs> is powerful right like i was talking to my brother a couple of days ago and it's like yeah the i mean my mind is a greasy car salesman you know <laughs> and the deal is is that he tells me lies all the time and i still fucking believe it <laughs> you know I get trapped every time of that greasy car salesman, you know? And it's like, it's a constant practice to be a witness to my thoughts and go, that's actually not true. That's actually not true. That's actually not true. You know what I mean? Most of what my mind tells me is false. And that, I mean, I'm, I would assume that metric goes for everyone else, you know? So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we just quit, all quit listening to the greasy car salesman. We probably wouldn't be killing each other or, you know, doing any other measure of terrible things oh i totally agree yeah i totally agree yeah was your um journey to sobriety is that a bonding point between you and your dad yeah my mom's sober now too um yeah it's awesome it's awesome to be um it's awesome to be in a sober household you know and to have i've been living with them for the last three months and and that's been really fun um you know to live with both of my parents being sober now you know it's kind of like little kelly's getting to kind of rewrite the story you know and um so yeah, it's definitely a bonding point. I mean, my mom and I go to a lot of meetings together, and um, and we have mutual friends in recovery, and um, and my dad and I are nearly the same person, um, and I mean, we're just we're so much the same in temperament and in look and in style and um, and everything else, and um, and it's it's cool to both be recovered. Yeah, it's 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 just awesome. It's a tremendous bonding factor, you know, that we all just acknowledge that like. You know, once we start drinking, we can't stop and we can't stop starting. And so it's like time to put it down. You know what I mean? It's, <laughs> it's cool. It's cool to be sober. And my brother drinks every once in a while, but he didn't end up alcoholic like the rest of us. And praise the Lord for that, you know. So it's a tough road to walk. But I think that um, I think that the point of life is to get to, um, you know, is to get to God or to get to enlightenment or the universe or Mother Earth or whatever you're sort of calling it, you know, to kind of get to that sense of inner knowing and, um, and the way that I got there was through alcoholism, 
you know, brought me to my knees and absolutely shattered me and enabled me to rebuild myself into something like whole and complete and loving and cool and nice to people. (laughs) So, um, one final question, and this came from something we were talking about before we hit record, is uh, my friend Ellen, who I'll be releasing in a couple of weeks, about her dyslexia and her label and her stigma and her rebuilding of her self-image. And maybe this is tied back into what you've talked about with the journey of sobriety, but do you recall how and when your self-image started brick by brick turning around? Absolutely. I mean, I was actually telling this story yesterday to somebody. So I, um, I talked to my first sponsor a couple days ago and, um, and her and I have kept in touch over the years. I don't work with her anymore, but we're still good friends. And we, um, there's this process in recovery where you do like a fourth step inventory. And basically you write down, a list of anything, anybody, anyone, any institution, um, that you have strong feelings about. And you basically write what happened and then you write how it affected your self-esteem, your pride, your personal relationships, your intimate relationships, your security, um, and your, and how it, um, developed some of your fears. And then in the the, um, the fourth column, as it's called, you write down like what your hand was in it, right? And part of the four-step process is to write, you know, because you're kind of unearthing all of this, you know, the idea of the four-step is that like you're a trash can and you're full of nonsense. And so we dump out the trash can and we, um, and we stand the trash can back up and we clean it inside and out, scrub it, right? And then we put all the things back in that are right and good. And then we start sifting through all the crap that we need to get rid of. And so common in a four-step practice is writing an assets and a defects list, right? Because we don't want to get too mired in self-pity or self-hatred while we're kind of going through this inventory and looking at some of the worst things that have ever happened. And my sponsor, uh, at the time when I was reading all this to her, put her hand on either side of my notebook and one was assets, one was defects. And she was like, which one do you think I love you more for? And I'm like, four months sober. I'm like, I, I don't know. And she like slides the defects towards me, you know, this idea that I could be lovable, not in spite of the things I don't like about myself, but because of them was earth shattering. I mean, that like, I will never, ever forget that moment as long as I live. It was so profound. I mean, I was sitting at her little yellow formica kitchen table (laughs) in this little apartment she had in the Highlands and, you know, it was sunny outside and I was losing my mind. And, and I mean, my my whole perception of myself changed at that moment. And um, I think that really, it's just been a process over the years, right? That that was really the first piece of it, that that was like the earth shattering, you know, sky fell open moment. And then it's been all of the little things since then that I've done to reinforce the fact that I love myself. You know, this idea that like, okay, I'm going to, I'm really into prayer and meditation. I know I've said it a hundred times, but I like have to have quiet time in the morning before I'm fit for human consumption. You know, I mean, I have to, it's, it's, it's essential, you know? And, um, and it's one of the ways that I really take care of myself is giving myself that quiet time with my coffee in the morning and, um, you know, and working out and, um, you know, eating nutritious food and, um, you know, having a wealth of friends and intimates. See you, buddy. Thank you. (laughs) And, you know, just, 
just all those little moments, writing myself love notes, you know, engaging, you know, engaging in things that I care about, you know, going to, um, I read a lot of books, you know, I realize that like TV is not my medium. I'm not a TV watcher. I don't like it. It freaks me out. And, um, so I read like 50 to 60 books a year. I mean, I'm a very avid reader, you know, just really engaging in things that like light my heart on fire. You know, that's the road to self-love is lighting your heart on fire every day in small ways that eventually the cumulative effect of those small things is so great that you end up, you know, at eight and a half years, like, you know, sober, like I am. And I'm like, Hey, Kelly, you're looking pretty good today. I love you, girl. What's going on? You know? (laughs) So was your sponsor in that moment on the, the yellow Formica table, was that the first awareness that another human could accept you for who you are yeah very first and i was 26 wow Mm -hmm. yeah it was crazy i'll never forget it as long as i live i mean she transformed my life in that moment you know and i haven't been the same since and um yeah i had never known what unconditional love meant until that moment you know this lady that hardly knew me that basically scraped my ass off the pavement and was willing to work with me and take me through the steps and um and loved me i mean she didn't know me from adam and she just loved me and that's that's one of the coolest things about being in recovery and and being involved in recovery community is just that you know, the worse you look, the more we like you. I mean, that's like a phrase that we throw around, you know, because <laughs> it's true. There's just nothing better than a brand brand new baby newcomer coming in the room, you know, crying and carrying on and feeling sorry for themselves and in the, you know, in the shame bucket. I mean, it's, it's true. I mean, the worse you look, the more we like you. And yeah, she just, she changed my life on that day. And, and, um, and I worked with her for a few years and, you know, I've worked with other sponsors since, but Nothing has been quite as profound as that first initial moment, you know? It's awesome. Yeah. Well, I just want to say again, thank you for making the time. And I love that it's never about what the conversation starts out to be. And I feel that I found like just another human on that, somewhat like me you know despite you know the gender and the age and the orientation and all that stuff just that there's somebody else out there that looks at the world the same way and it's just it's been an honor and thank you so much for making the time yeah it's been a real pleasure being here thanks for inviting me i'm so happy to have been here and to have shared those things with you and um yeah i mean the hope is just that somebody listens to it and gets gets their heart set on fire right that just I mean, we want to just lift people up, you know, give people love and grace and compassion and kindness. And I mean, that's just the mission. That's the goal. So I can't add anything more. (laughs) (laughs) Kelly, thank you so much. Thank you. Episodes of this podcast are produced and written by me, Matt Sodnikar. The intro was engineered by good friend Cole Weinman. And our original score theme song, Retro Funk, was composed by previous guest and good friend Randy Wiafe. I also have two requests. If you like this show, please share it with a friend who you think might like it. And also take the time to show them how to listen to a podcast, either on Apple, Transistor, or Spotify. 
and I know you know somebody out there that would make a fantastic guest. And if you do, please shoot me an email to podcast at thewarmfront.com. Thanks for listening.